Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to For What It's Worth podcast. This is a long time coming, and when I sort of tapered off this podcast, I was amazed at how many people reached out and said, hey, man, when are you going to do another podcast? I really miss your podcast. I thought there were maybe seven people listening to this podcast, uh, but I think there's at least twice that many now after the absolute deluge of, of requests for me to kickstart this again. But let me explain something before we go any further. And by the way, my allergies are directly responsible for the way I sound right now. Uh, I just did a 20-mile bike ride, and then I came back and I rode my motorcycle, trying to break it in, taking very slow, doing laps around the neighborhood. And um, that wind just buffeting me in the face. The whole time, and the chemisa is in bloom, and I am miserable. My entire face itches. Like, if you came up to me on the street right now, I would just beg you to take your nails and just scratch my entire face. That's how bad my face itches right now. And the weird thing is, I have not had allergies in my entire adult life. So, whatever happened this year, I think it's because Santa Fe had so much rain this summer. The one summer that I'm gone virtually the entire time, and they get rain every, every day. So that's a, I guess that's a plus. My, my suffering is uh, a plus in the grand scheme of things. Um, yeah, so I'm rubbing my face and my eyes as I do this podcast. But for those of you out there who reached out, this is for you. Now, you got to cut me some slack. I'm not in podcast form. I, I just quickly jotted down some notes. I'm still rubbing my face and my eyes. I just quickly jotted these things down, and we're going to burn through these. But I'm not in podcast shape. I've got to get my fitness back, so bear with me here. The reason I started this podcast is only because I love sound recording. There's something about recording sound, whether it's my own voice or ambient sound, that I absolutely love, and I don't do it as often as I should. I have these dreams of doing a still photo project where I shoot the still camera and then record sound and mix that together into some sort of film, which I hope to do at some point in my life, but I don't imagine that happening anytime soon. There's so much happening with Blurb, I don't know where to start. Uh, I still have a job. That's almost 11 years now in running, which is some sort of twisted record, I think, in the, in the tech-slash-software world, but uh, I'm still there. I love my job. I had a long call with my boss yesterday for the first time in quite some time, which was fun, catching up with her and uh, learning about some of the inner workings behind what's happening. And then also, I'm on my way uh, to another part of the country in the van here in the very near future, and I'm going to hopefully meet up with some of the folks from the parent company that is now the overlord of Blurb, which is a company that's basically been in partnership with Blurb from before Blurb was even Blurb. So it's uh, not a whole lot has changed for someone like me. Uh, but I get to meet some of these folks who I have not met before. So yes, I am about to embark on another long road trip. It will not be as long as the one I just got through with, which was seven weeks and 6,000 miles, basically. This will be, I think, about three weeks and I think seven states and probably 4,000 miles, roughly, something like that. Uh, mostly work, mostly meetings. I'll be just trying to film everything I can possibly film as I move along uh, because that's what I have to do these days. My life is very different than it was a few short years ago. And yes, I'm still rubbing my eyes in my face. I have not stopped, which I'm no, I know I'm not supposed to do. I can't help it. Like the backside of my eyes itch. So I have to get through the, my entire eyeball to get to them. So it's ugly in here. Okay. And you can hear me sniffling, which I'm going to be doing the whole time. So bear with me. Okay, my people, if you're new to this whole thing, if you realize that I'm now a YouTube darling, a film star, if you will, and we're going to speak about a film star in a minute here. It's one of my points, which I think is going to catch some of you by surprise, but uh, no, it's not me. But I often start with this podcast with like, who is this for? Why on earth would you ever listen to my podcast? And that's a question that I have a hard time answering. But um, I think if your search, if your online search history would land you in Guantanamo, then I think this podcast is for you. Welcome aboard. Come on in. If you are petrified that someone is going to find your online search history, which probably is about 98% of us, because I've searched for some damn strange things over the years that on the surface might look rather incriminating, but uh, there is a method to my madness for those of you who know me. And so uh, I also I start this out with who's it for, and I just told you. If your search history is going to land you in Guantanamo, I think you'll like this podcast. And I also have a hero of the week. 
And it, you know, the hero of the week and I have the goat of the week. And I don't mean greatest of all time goat. I mean goat as in moron. And there's so many to choose from right now. Uh, but let's start with the hero. My hero is any of you out there who are just sucking down that horse paste as fast as you can get it. So in my family, the number of people who have ingested horse dewormer is one, standing at one. But I think if we really apply ourselves and continue to ignore getting vaccinated and not wearing a mask and acting like COVID isn't real, um, I think we can up that number. But right now, I only have one immediate family member who has sucked them down some of that horse paste. And let me tell you, it did not go well. Did not go well. After one dose, apparently there was a, a quite a reaction. Believe it or not, gee, I'm, I'm just mystified as to why that would happen. Uh, won't take a vaccine, but will suck down them, them some horse paste. Um, makes total sense to me. But anyway, apparently after one dose, there was a uh, major problem, and the dosage was stopped. So I guess there is good news. Two more people here in New Mexico died today from horse paste. Toxicity. Um, my advice, might want to skip that. Go ahead and skip that. Even if you're not taking the vaccine, I would go ahead and skip the uh, horse paste. Now, you can finagle yourself some of the human dosage of Invermectin, but... Um, I think you might want to go back and rethink that one as well. But hey, what do I know? I went to public school, solid C student, unless you include math, and then it, I would drop that bar a little bit further. Our goat of the week is really hard to narrow down. I mean, I could throw some Afghanistan withdrawal people under the, uh, under the bus. I could also throw the American public under the bus for almost complete lack of understanding of Afghanistan in the first place, or the ability to even find it on a map. Let's start there. Hey, where's the country that we've been fighting in for 20 plus years? How many Americans, if you lined up 10 random strangers on the, on the street, how many could even identify where Afghanistan is? My guess is maybe one or two. That's at best. I think one or two would be able to find it. So right there in itself, maybe we are the goat of the week. But I think right now, with the shenanigans going on, and let me preface this, people, for you haters out there, for you people out there who think that I have some sort of allegiance to an American political party. Let me just cut you off right there, my friends. I think our political system is fundamentally and soundly broken and has been for my entire life, and I do not identify with either political party. Um, nor do I even really identify with being an independent, which every time I've taken a political test in my life, I've come out as, a, as an independent. But I don't even, I think the system is broken. Now, if I was a decent human being, I would do something and get involved and try, try to change that. But I think it's so broken that I think my energy is best served elsewhere. Like, I don't know, making films about photography on YouTube. That just seems like a great idea. And um, I know it's really, it's really furthering us as a culture and civilization. And when they dig us out of the rubble 20 or 30 years from now, I don't know, maybe they'll find my little plaque for 10,000 followers on YouTube. That is if they would have sent a plaque for 10,000. 10,000 doesn't mean anything, by the way, as far as I know. Have not seen a change whatsoever, but also not making any real effort to monetize or, or be famous on YouTube. So maybe that's the problem. But let's, let's just, let me line up some people here for Goat of the Week. So you and I are the goat. Let's just throw ourselves under the bus. bus. Uh, the way that tactically Afghanistan was handled, that's bad. But when you've got people like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Greg Abbott in Texas and, and, and Donnie Dipshit DeSantos in Florida... Um, which has, Florida has like 2,500 deaths a day. Texas is close to 2,000. 52,000 school kids in Texas have tested positive for COVID. Um, now, I know a lot of people in Texas who tell me straight to my face that they don't have COVID anymore, that it's, quote, as if it never happened. I just got that one from someone in Texas, someone who's already had COVID, by the way. And so it's a very odd disconnect that we're in. But for whatever reason, Oh, I know the reason. I mean, Boebert and Green and Abbott and DeSantos and all these people, they are they have an audience of one, which is Donald Trump. And for whatever reason, they decided to hitch their wagon to this moron. And so they've got to do whatever it, whatever they can to try to appease. You know, they are terrified of him because if he turns his rage and his crazy followers on them, they're done. So what's odd is I have some pretty hardcore Texan friends and they're they're starting to get a little fed up with Mr. Abbott. 
And so I'm curious what happens. But I would say the go to the week, you, me, them, us, all of us, we are lettering in stupidity, which is something that I have uh, mentioned on my YouTube channel recently. I think we all are wearing a letter jacket like we did in high school. And the country itself is lettering in stupidity because we are so divided and so politically radicalized. We point the finger at these other religious extremists from other countries, but yet we've done the same thing to ourselves in a 20-year time frame. And it's, it's lame. Let's just face it. It's lame. All right. Um, just a quick rundown. Um, this is not a point. Before we get to the points here, this is just a quick rundown because I listed this for something else. I get a lot of questions about this. And I'm just going to list these brands. These are the brands that, um, that I work with. And when I say work with, this, it's not like I'm you know, on the payroll from these people. But these are brands that I either use or um, and, you know, most of these are just brands that I bought stuff from that I really like. Beyond Clothing, you all know. They're a partner for the AG23. Um, Turn Bicycles just loaned me a folding bike. I'm getting ready to go out on the road in the van again, and I realized that if I had a folding bike, I would get back about a third of the storage space underneath the sleeping platform in the van, which is huge. And I love my Salsa, full-size Salsa 29er drop bar adventure bike. I love that thing. It's the bike I've had for the last eight years. I just did 20 miles on it this morning. I'm not, I have no intention of getting rid of that bike ever, and I'm hoping that that bike lasts the rest of my life. But the folding bikes, which I did own, let's just talk, well, you know what? The first point was turn. So let me just go on here. Turn, Sony, Fuji, Tenba, Shimoda, Atlas, Salsa, and My Canoe. My Canoe is the folding origami canoe that I have in the van that is the ultimate badass thing. It is the single most talked about item in the van. Anytime the doors open and people look in the van and they see it and they go, is that what I think it is? And then when you're unfolding this thing, it will draw a crowd wherever you are, and it will draw people that you would think would ridicule the thing. And I've not had one person say, oh, that's dumb. I've had even like the most rednecky of guys in like power boats will come up and go, dude, that is unreal. Is that really a canoe? Does it work? Is it stable? It's fantastic. So my canoe, I have no affiliation with them whatsoever. I just bought it and miraculously got it. But we're going to talk about this in a minute about the state of the world right now. Uh, in terms of getting things. But let's go to point number one. Point number one is, is turn bicycles. And again, I don't have an affiliation with them. I met someone online who works for them, and they were very generous. They, they sent me a loaner bike for a while. And the loaner bike that I got is what I would call a Swiss Army bike of folding bikes. It's got, you know, two-inch wide tires, fenders. It's got dynos for uh, built-in lighting. It's, um, it's got racks on it. It's not a fast folding bike. It's not a bike I'm going to jump on and do 40 road miles or 50 road miles. Now, they make folding bikes. Turn makes bikes that are fast, and they are much more orientated for, like, going out and doing road cycling. But what I was looking at in the van was I need a bike where I need, if I need to ride to the beach with panniers on the back, if I need to go shopping, if my wife needs to ride it. Uh, what, what can we use? And so I just went on the side and found something that looked like sort of jack of all trades. It's not an electric version. They, they make really nice e-bikes. This is just a non e-bike thing and they sent it and it's great. And I put it in the van and it's amazing. Um, and, and this, this particular model is not the smallest fold they make, but it's just incredible how much room I got back immediately. And the bike fits in horizontally. Or if I tip it up on the wheels, it fits in vertically, both of which fit underneath the sleeping platform in the back of the van. So it's like crazy. The only thing I have to figure out is how I'm going to secure it, which will be a bungee cord in some way, shape, or form. Because it's so small, there's nothing stopping it now from flying around. Now, the problem is my wife also looked at this amount of space saving, and you know where I'm going with this. And her little wheels started turning in her twisted little head. And she's like, gee, look at all that free space I can now fill up with other crap. So I'm trying, we just had a, I just yelled at her, which is our, our, our methodology for communication primarily is um, I just yell at her. And for whatever reason, it works. But she, I was like, look, just because there's space doesn't mean you fill it. You know, the lighter the van, the better it drives, the better the mileage, the more fun it is. We don't need much. We're only going for three weeks. It's mostly work. We're going to be in cities most of the time. I don't even know if I'm going to take the canoe. I probably shouldn't because I can't imagine having time to use it on this trip. Uh, so I don't know. I'm on the fence about taking it. But Turn loaned me this, this bike. And now my brain is back on the folding bike uh, world. Now let me give you a little history. I had a folding bike at one time, probably 10 years ago or more, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I bought a bike called a Bike Friday. And a Bike Friday is, a, Friday, bike Friday is out of Oregon. 
I want to say Eugene. And they make these really remarkable folding bikes. And mine was kitted out to be a road cycling bike. I had carbon fiber wheels. I had drop bars. The thing was fast. And I would pull up to ride with people like on group rides. And they would look down and say, well, you can't ride that. And I'd say, uh, yes, I can. The gearing is, is, makes this all right with the world. And then we'd rip 30 or 40 miles, and these people would be like, I cannot believe you can do that on a folding bike. And I'm like, it pedals and rides like a regular bike. It's, more, it's even more responsive. Maybe it doesn't climb qu- quite as well, but it's great. But the problem with the Bike Friday was at the time, and this is, again, 10 or 15-year-old technology, was putting it together probably took about 30 minutes. And it, it would fit into a black Samsonite suitcase that you could just check. And I checked it and flew with it all over the place. And it was great. I'd get there, unpack it, whatever. But it was a while to put this bike together. Lots of parts, lots of pieces. The new bikes, like the bike that Turn loaned me, it's a 10-second, 15-second fold. Tops. Boom. Done. Two major folds. The, 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 the stem in the front, the frame in the middle. Done. So it's pretty, pretty great. Now, my bike, bike Friday was really fast. And this bike is not. So I'm going to use it on this next three-week trip. And I'll be in cities most of the time. So it's kind of perfect for that. But my brain is thinking folding bike now. And now now the gates are open. And I think what will eventually happen is that we will get a turn electric folding bike for my wife. Because they have front suspension and racks. And it's like a jack-of-all-trades bike. But but it's an e-bike. And this morning on my 20-mile ride, I passed this old-timer. And he had a rad power bike, which probably had three inch wide wheels, tires, I mean, and, uh, baskets on the back. He had like panniers on the back and stuff. And I passed him and I thought he said, Hey, isn't it a nice day? And I gave him the thumbs up and kept going. But then I realized he comes ripping up behind me and pulls up next to me. And he's like, Hey, are you training for the Santa Fe century? And I said, no, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to miss it. And so we talked electric bikes for a long time. And it's very cool to see an elderly guy like that out riding. And he's doing the century. And he's bringing an extra battery, and he's going to do 100 miles on his Rad Power bike. That's very cool. I like that whole thing. And so folding bikes are insane. I love, and I've never had one, I've never ridden one, and I've never actually seen one in person, is Brompton. And Brompton bikes are, if you don't know them, B-R-O-M-P-T-O-N. They're out of the U.K. They're classic. They've been around forever. Probably the fastest, smallest folding bike I've seen. Um, those are amazing too. So lot, lots of great books, bikes out there. Okay, point number two is we're talking AG23 update. Now, it's been a while since I've mentioned anything about AG. I've done films on the contributors. The second issue is doing really well. There's been a lot of changes that have happened that nobody knows about, except for me and except for Rick, who is my senior uh, editing partner on this. He's, he's the other 50% of the AG23 equation. The first thing I want to say is that the second issue has done really well by some of the contributors. Now, contributors are going to vary always. You're going to have people that are going to get published and they're never going to do anything with it. They will never tell anybody about it. They will never show it to anyone. They will never use it for promotion. That's just the, the, the way things are in the photo world. And I know that might seem completely counterintuitive, but it's very common. So Sometimes when you're going to send AGs out to people, they will just bury them in a closet and never show them or tell anyone or send it to anyone in their database. It's kind of weird. But that's I knew that going in. I just know that's how photographers operate. And I've been around photographers for 35 years. I got a pretty good idea of the psychology of what why someone would do that. But on the flip side, you have photographers who get it and they run with it. And they are coming back to me all the time saying, can I get more copies? Can I get more copies? And I have to say that someone, I'm not going to tell you who it is exactly, but someone that's in the second issue has done gangbusters by sending out AG23s to collectors and museums. Massive print sales and museum shows, direct result of being in AG23, which is the point of the whole process. I, we did not do that to sell blurb. There is nothing in the zine about blurb. We did not do it to sell beyond clothing. There is nothing in the zine about beyond clothing. The zine is about the contributors and the stories and us promoting them. So that these exact types of things can happen. But it takes two to tango. And this person said, I'm going to organize events. I'm going to give out these zines. I'm going to share these with the people that I think are interested in my career. And boom, 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 boom. It has happened again and again and again for this person. And I'm not talking about a random 
sale of a single print. I'm talking about major print sales multiple times and then had a conversation uh, with this person a couple of days ago and she said, guess what? You know, on my way overseas, got a, a, um, a show in a museum and it's because of the zine. And so that makes me feel awesome and that makes me want to keep going. One of the things that no one knows that is now going to be public knowledge is my senior co-editor partner, Mr. Rick, is no longer CEO and director of Beyond Clothing. He has moved on to take another position as CEO at another company. So things are up in the air, but issue three is paid for. Um, I have the contributors pretty much lined up, and I'm working on some alternates. I've had two meetings in the last week with people here in Santa Fe that were both. One was very interested and came to me and said, hey, I would love to be in it. And the other was someone that I was going after, and he was kind of lukewarm. He said he was interested, but I'm not sure he really is, and um, I'm not going to push that. If he comes back to me, then I will be absolutely thrilled to include his work. But if he doesn't, I'm going to leave it alone. Again, based on 35 years of being around creatives, you have to know how to read the tea leaves. So who knows? But I've got some great people lined up. Collecting the work is very difficult and very time-consuming. It, it really is. It, it is to, it, at times, it took me months to get work from people. Um, the work would come. It'd be in the wrong format. I'd have to go back. They'd have to resend it. Um, the, ed, the copy was not copy edited. Um, you know, it takes a lot longer than you would think. And then it has to go through the process of making sure that it's been edited. And then it goes to the designer. Does it fit her time frame, her schedule, her life? And then has to go to the printer, and we're going to get to this in a minute, but the print industry is in major trouble, as in all the other major industries in the world due to COVID. But anyway, that's where we are. Three is going to be rock solid. After three, I think we face a very interesting crossroads. I think that this project can go in one of many different directions, and I don't know which one it will go. I don't know which direction it will take. I know I have daydreams about what I would love for, for this to happen. And one of the things that I'm going to do is really talk to our parent company and say, look, you know, I'm going to get demanding here for a second and I'm going to get greedy and needy and I'm going to ask for some things because I think this project, um, when, it, when you're speaking to professional creatives in particular, this project, AG23, is a goldmine for what you can learn and take from it. If you're a professional creative, this speaks to, AG23 speaks to brand collaboration without the brands being the focal point of the collaboration. Do you have any idea how rare that is? It's never happened to me in 11 years at Blurb. This is the only time it's ever happened. That should tell you right there. Number two, it speaks to creative collaboration between creatives who are all putting their work in the same basket and being published at the same time. It speaks to community building. It speaks to independent self-publishing, which to me is the future of publishing. If the egos would be set aside, I think a lot more people would realize that right now. It speaks to creating something that's free, that's not designed to go after the art and photography markets. I could care less what art and photography think of the zine. A lot of people have, are surprised to hear me say that, but I don't care. Those two industries are incredibly fickle, and I don't want to preach to the choir. Yes, when photographers see it or artists see it, they, they, they relate to it, but that's not the point. My demographic was 18 to 35. The people who might look at Andrew Kaufman's piece and say, Panama Canal, what country is that in? Those are the people that I'm interested in. It's the people that look at Elena Dorfman's on, a piece on Albania and say, is that in Russia? Is that in South America? I want those people looking at it. Because they're going to learn something. And the cool thing is, and, the, and contributors have told me this now for quite some time, is that the, the issues travel. They, they come in that really cool slipcase, and then somebody will keep, keep it for a while, and then they'll give it to somebody else. And they'll give it because it's not precious. It's free, and it's not precious. We specifically did not make something precious or expensive. I'm not preaching to the 1%. I'm not making something that only the 1% can even afford. You know, photo books are a luxury item. They are a novelty, and they are for the 1% of the 1%. So if you're, even, if, even if you have the best intentions in the world and you're a photographer and you want to do a monograph with a traditional publisher that's printed in 2,500 copies and it's $60 or $80 to buy the book or even $40 to buy the book, you're, you're making that book for the 1% of the 1%. The rest of the world does not care, and they never will, and they'll never engage, and they can never afford to buy that. 
you know, if a $7 COVID test is too expensive for people to make, and that's true, that's happening here in America, the prices have gone way down and we're, we're, you can get a test now for about seven bucks, but that's too expensive for a lot of people. Do you think that same lot of people are going to spend 40 on a photo book? No. Are they going to spend 100 on a photo book? You're out of your mind. So we wanted something free, non-precious, non-confrontational, non-egotistical. It's just, hey, look at these stories. We think they're interesting. These people are worth your time. And oh, by the way, here's a website, and you can get it for free. So a lot happening. Um, I'm not going to go into all the details, but we're excited and also curious where this is going to lead. Um, and yes, let me repeat, it is one hell of a lot of work to put this thing together, and it's expensive. You know, so there is cost involved behind the scenes, and I am working on that as we speak. Okay, point number three. Let's talk camera gear because that's what all the cool kids do, right? Um, let's talk chlor fluoride elements and, and bokeh and all this stuff that makes it is really important when it comes to photography, right? And by the way, that noise you hear, that's the chair I'm sitting on. It's creaking. I'm in the kitchen looking out the window, but my kitchen, my dining room is sort of in the middle of the living room. It's all one big open space, and I'm looking out at the most gorgeous landscape. So that's why I'm in here. I got out of my office. Um, I have a question. How the hell does anyone do a, quote, complete review of a camera that came out four days ago? Jesus Cristo, these YouTube geeks that review camera gear that are like, I, this camera came out two days ago, and these are the top ten reasons why you should not buy it. Here's my complete review. Just ignore it. How on earth are you going to review a camera that came out four days ago, other than pointing at the menus, right? And, and none of these folks actually know how to shoot. or They don't do projects. They've never done assignments. They've never worked for someone else. It, if they have, it's a mystery where that stuff is because I've not seen it. Because they walk around Hong Kong or they walk around some park somewhere shooting flowers and telling me about a camera. That is meaningless. It's worthless. It really means nothing. You've got to get those cameras into somebody's hands who knows what the hell they're doing and how to use it. Give it to them for four days. And then at the end of that four days, all they have to do is make a YouTube film that either says one of two things. They either go, it works, or they go, uh-uh, it doesn't work. And then all of us who actually know how to do photography that have done this for a long time will say, oh, I trust that person. He knows what they're doing. He does assignments or she does assignments. She's with an agency. She knows what a camera is required for a camera to work on set or in the field or whatever. And all I need to know is a thumbs up or thumbs down from that person, and I'll know whether or not that camera is viable. There isn't anyone out there doing that. The, the real photographers, for some reason, never get the kit. The only people who get the kit are these geeks with numbers on YouTube who've never shot a decent photo in their life. And I know that sounds harsh, but it's true. So let me tell you about the Sony a7C. Um, just smash that like button and subscribe to my... No, I'm kidding. The Sony a7C is awesome and it works. I have not found a weakness in the camera. Now, remember, I shoot Fuji cameras as well. And I think for the price and ergonomics, Fuji is the best camera system out there. The Fuji cameras are laid out like my the cameras I started using in 1988. They're, they're so simple and so easy. And the menus are fantastic. The color of the files are incredible. The cameras are so functional. I've never had one fail. I love the Fuji system, and I'm going to continue to use it. And I'm talking X-T2, X-T4. Um, the GFX stuff, I'm sure, is amazing. I've never used it. I got the Sony because the Sony was full frame. And there is something about a full frame camera, especially when you have lenses, old lenses, that you want to put on it and use. I could have bought an adapter for the Fuji for these old lenses, but the Fuji's not full frame. That's the one thing about the camera system that if I could change, if Fuji would make a full-frame X-T4, I'd be in total heaven. But they don't. So I'm like, okay, whatever. Sony makes this little camera. I'll get it. And when I say little, it's little. My t bottom fingers on my right hand are not even on the camera. It's so small in my hand. It is built like a rock. The battery lasts a long time. The focus tracking is insane. There's no shutter lag. The finder is small but functional, and anybody who's worn glasses and shot a Leica for 25 years will have no problem with the Sony a7C finder. The camera works. I've only shot it at 1080, but the 4K, I'm sure, is amazing. 
Um, it's going to eat the battery faster, obviously going to take up more storage. I don't need 4K. I'm just going out to YouTube and social, and I could be shooting probably 720 if I wanted to. But I'm shooting 1080. There is no weakness on that camera that I have found. And, and, and that's it. That's my entire review. The menus, who gives a shit about the menus, right? I go in the menus to format the card. That's it. What else am I changing in these menus all the time? So that is a review of a camera. It works. I have a 21.8 lens and a 55.18. They're both fantastic. Um, I like the 20 because the aperture ring is on the lens and it's faster to change the aperture than it is on the 55, which has to be done with a thumb wheel on the back. It's not that it's not slow. I would just much rather have my aperture on the on the lens barrel than on a thumb wheel, but you know, beggars can't be choosers. So whatever. The camera works. That's all you need to know. And it works with my Leica 50 with an adapter. And that's the primary reason was I, I wanted a full frame camera for old manual lenses and I wanted something with very solid um, motion capability, something that was small, reliable, good battery, done, over, it works. If you're on the fence, buy it. That's all I have to say and that's all you have to need. Now it's on you to go use it and make good photographs, which are not easy to make. And I know because most of what I've made has sucked. Okay, so I'm going to switch up these points here because this, this needs to be spoken about. So I reached out to a friend at Sony and said, you know, hey, I love this camera. It's great. Um, I need a mic. And Sony makes a mic that fits in the hot shoe that's omnidirectional, um, shotgun, and it's analog or digital, and it plugs in with no cable. You just put it in the hot shoe and roll. And I need that because it saves me from using my Rode lav mics my little micro Rode wireless go mics, which are great. I love them. But in some cases, it's much faster to just put a mic in the hot shoe that has a, you know, a nice little directional mic and be able to use that. So I reached out and the friend at Sony said, Hey, okay, I'll help you find one. And the friend at Sony wrote back and said, look, we got a problem here. They're back ordered and the ships are off the coast of Long Beach. And we have no idea when these stuffs are going to come. And so Point number three was the Sony a7C. I just gave you my complete review. It works. There's no weakness. It's a great camera. Um, the mic is backordered. And this shifts me to the next point, which is going to be four. It's six on my list, but it's going to be four, which is the state of the world right now. And one of the things that you will understand, if you spend a lot of time around photographers or creatives in general, photographers being the worst on this list, is a lot of times photographers, because it's so difficult to make a living, and you're judged and judged harshly on a regular basis. You can often fall prey to being so myopic in your thought and being so self-centered and selfish and so basically delusional because your entire world is you. And so if you're not impacted by something, then it doesn't exist. And this really rubs me the wrong way because photographers of all people should be more intelligent, more worldly, more connected to what actually is happening in the interconnected parts of the world. If, let me just tell you if, you, if you think the COVID situation is over, if you think uh, we're on the tail end of this, if you think things are back to normal, you are delusional. Because let's talk about manufacturing. It is decimated worldwide. If you read and research what's happening in China right now, all of you should, should be concerned. If you throw in raw materials on top of manufacturing, you should be concerned. If you throw in shipping, you should be concerned. We are at basically a precipice. These are systems that are failing. Paper mills are closing. Materials for printing are, are gone. They're out worldwide. And it's not getting better. It's still getting worse. So photographers will come to me and say something like, blah, 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 blah. Why don't you just do X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, well, because I can't ship that. Well, why not? Shipping is totally fine. You know, I mailed a letter across town and it got there fine. Shipping is completely decimated globally. Again, paper mills going under. Materials used in the printing process, gone. China charging for warehousing for the first time. Warehouses are full print runs stopping, no space on ships, ships that are already in motion can't unload. There's a story just now about Long Beach Harbor that just ran in the, in the Guardian this morning, hundreds of, of container ships off the coast with no way to unload them. 
people, the world is in a fractured, fragile state right now, and we are a long way from coming out of this. So if your little world is your photography life, and you think that things are normal and everything is back to normal and fine and, and it's like spring break and everybody can just go out and, and act like things are normal, it's delusional. And my little Sony mic um, is, is just a perfect example. Yeah, just a little microphone. I ordered a 4K touchscreen for the van because I don't have I, my big monitor doesn't fit. Couldn't get it. Um, got my motorcycle. Um, the, all of 2022s were sold out, and they were like, "We have no idea when we're going to get it. If and ever, you know, you might wait until 2023." The 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 trailer hitch company called me and said, "We can no longer get raw materials. Every single thing. I was looking for a bicycle replacement part the other day. Every single company everywhere in the world was sold out." Then just as a, as a, for shits and grins, I basically went to another bicycle company and I tried to put an order in for a bicycle. Not a single model was available anywhere in the world. And every single shop I went out to said the same thing. There's no materials. We can't get the materials. And even if we could, we'd never get it on a ship. And even if we could get it on a ship, it would never be unloaded. So <clears throat> if you want a bike, you can choose what we have in stock and that's it. So <clears throat> photographers are a strange group. And, and I'll throw creatives into this whole thing, but photographers for whatever reason, and photographers do not have a good reputation in the, in the creative space in general. A few do. The superstars will have that. And if, and if a photographer can do something for someone else in, create, in the creative space, they'll, they'll get a good rep. But for the most part, like people are kind of wary. Um, photographers are notorious for only knowing about photography and not much else. Um, and so it's a very strange community to be around because when they act like things are normal, the other, the other way I've seen this reflected is getting back to traveling and doing very, very dangerous exposed things, exposed meaning COVID exposure, and then downplaying the whole thing as if what they're doing is not irresponsible. And it is irresponsible. It's 100% irresponsible. It's like Seth Rogen at the Emmys saying, gee, um, they gave the quote-unquote performers an exemption to COVID safety? You know, that basically explains, again, we're lettering in stupidity. Um, things are not back to normal. So just be cool and chill out and relax and focus on whatever you can at home and, and don't, um, you know, go out and do irresponsible things. Okay, point number five, something like that, whatever. Um, I passed 10,000 subscribers on YouTube, which to me is hilarious. Because I think March 18, 2020 was when I started doing YouTube for Reelsy. Because Blurb came and said, can you do motion content? I was like, I don't know. I'm a still photographer. I would like to, and I would like to learn, and I need to learn. So yeah, let's do it. Like, let's see what happens. And so I just started posting stuff, mostly me on camera, because I don't know how to make films. And you know, I thought, oh, I'll get this camera, and I can handhold, and I'll be Steven Spielberg, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. This will be easy. And then I was like, uh, no, that doesn't work. And so um, I passed 10,000. For those of you out there who are subscribing, I say thank you and I appreciate it. Um, again, I don't make an effort. My channel is technically monetized, but I don't make an effort. And if you consider the amount of gear I've purchased and the amount of time I've spent trying to learn how to use it, I am so far in the hole monetary-wise from YouTube I'm, I'm thousands of dollars in the hole. So there is no, even though I make a little money a month, you know, I get this little uh, Google AdSense thing that says, here's your monthly payment. It's pales in comparison to the amount of time and money and effort I've put out to try to do this stuff. So I don't know how anyone on YouTube makes that much kind of money. Um, I'm sure there are. I know if you have millions of subscribers and, you know, you're doing branded content and all that, you could make some serious money. Um, and that would be awesome, by the way, uh, to be able to do that because money buys freedom, people. It ain't sure as hell doesn't buy happiness, but it does buy freedom. And that's what um, I like. Okay, point number six. I think it's six or five. I don't know. Don't hold me to this. Um, road trip. If you've been watching my tube, you know that I spent seven weeks on the road, 6,000 miles, 19 states. But who's counting? Um, and I uh, ripped across the country. I did some work. I saw. I did some personal stuff. I swam in the Atlantic. I swam in all kinds of different bodies of water. But I have to tell you, man, I am very careful about the fresh water that I get into these days because that flesh-eating parasite is now creeping its way into all kinds of bodies of waters around the country. So if I see stagnant water, I am not getting in. There are places that I used to water ski that I would not get in the water anymore, um, especially places in Texas I would not get in the water um, but saltwater is great. And the Atlantic has always been 
my favorite ocean that that borders the United States. I've always liked it more than the Pacific. And um, I really love being in the Atlantic. I think overall, if I had to judge the the country from based on my road trip, I would say that things are okay. Um, I don't think they're as bad as the media wants you to believe. And they're certainly not as good as the politicians want you to believe. It's somewhere in the middle. Um, I think our education system is failing and faltering. And that's not a, that's not a condemnation of the teachers. I think teachers are doing what they can with what they have, but we need to reinvent the system because we are nowhere near competing with the top countries in the world, and our population is uneducated. And because of that, we suffer from stupidity and conspiracy and bigotry and all the other nonsense that we seem to love so much today. And the reason these politicians can do what they do is because our population is uneducated, and we're falling for it. We're suckers for these people who are just blatant, you know, they're grifters. And they have been since the time of the colony. So it's not something new. It's not something that just popped up when Donnie Dipshit took over. It's been around for a long time. So, But I think overall, especially when you get with everyday people and you talk to them, for the most part, people are very cool. I think people are probably more suspicious today. And they're also very prone to throw the political argument or the political statement or stand very early in a conversation, which never used to happen. You know, politics used to be none of your business kind of thing. You voted for who you did, but you didn't discuss it. It was, it was my po- political situation was none of your business and vice versa. Now it comes up very, very quickly, especially with those on the right. Um, and, and that's not to say that the right or that, that it's only the right. I have lefty people that I've met along this trip that were absolutely batshit crazy so far left. You know, their feet weren't on the ground anymore. But um, the right seems to bring up like that rah-rah flag-waving stuff, um, also mostly followed by some weird conspiracy. That's my thing. But most of the time when you're still talking to these people, people are cordial. You know, if you have an issue, they'll try to help you out. I think, I think we still have the, the, the DNA of something good here in America, and we just have to scrape away the layers of frosting, the empty calories that we've built on top of that DNA over all these years, and, and be smart about it. And let's go back to the bicycle thing. You know, why on earth, if you are, let's say that you're the most hardcore redneck on the planet, why on earth would you not want cycling to be a huge part of the city that you live in? It benefits you in every conceivable way. It benefits your health insurance. It benefits your your pocketbook. All of that benefits by more people being on bikes. But because we live in the country we do, in the climate we do, that's become a political issue as well. All this kind of crazy, nonsensical things. Um, the other thing I would say about the country is that their infrastructure is definitely aging. So especially when you're up in the Northeast Corridor, let's say, or even driving from Maine to Chicago, those roads are a disaster. The, the throughways, toll roads, expressways, whatever you want to call them, they are in very, very poor condition. Now, someone wrote me yesterday and said, by the way, a lot of those are no longer even owned by American companies. They're owned by international companies. Um, and they were basically to even buy those roads. The companies were offered incentives and lower. They basically lowered the standards of which those roads had to be to sweeten the deal for these companies to buy them. So the roads are horrendous. The bridges are old. The, even the overpasses on the road, rusted, old, cracked concrete. I mean, there are literally trillions of dollars worth of infrastructure that needs to be redone and replaced. It ain't happening. We're, we're just not there. We're not collectively together as a country to make smart enough decisions to get this done. We're just too divided. And frankly, and I'm going to use the C word, we are corrupt to the core. And you see this. This, the corruption here translates into all different kinds of flavors. So yes, you've got political corruption to the highest degree at the very top, and you look at it and go, oh God, everybody knows it's happening. It doesn't matter what party, they're all doing it. That's why the Dems are not really pushing these investigations that hard, because they don't want the lens turned back on them because they're doing it too. So we, we just have to get it together collectively. And corruption will can be anything from... $95 for a tent campsite at a campground in Maine because they know they can do it and get away with it. And you may not call that corruption, but it is. It's overcharging someone with an out-of-state plate to rent a canoe. That kind of stuff happens all the time. And, and of course, you, no one admits it. 
and especially those that are like, we're the best country in the world. We're the best. We're the best. We're the best. You can't say anything negative or it's anti-American. We're corrupt. It happens all the time. And so it just sucks when it's really blatant and it's becoming more and more blatant because people aren't even trying to hide it. So anyway, that's my take. Okay, the photog state of the world already talked about that. Okay, let's talk about pornography. Um, and let's talk about one person in particular. So back in the day, I did a documentary project called Sugar Daddy. And the documentary project was about a adult male adult film star named Dave Cummings. And I met Dave in San Diego. And I was I had heard a story. And for those of you out there who wonder about long-term projects and how you do them and how I come up with my ideas, well, I'm about to share with how I, I came up with one idea. I was in San Diego and I was working for Kodak. This was 97, 98, or 99. And I was listening to NPR in the car driving from Orange County to San Diego. And at the time, there was a strike by UPS. UPS had gone on strike. And it said one of the industry's hardest hit was the adult entertainment industry because at that time, pre-internet and everyone being doing everything online, they were syndicating their films via UPS. And UPS went on strike, and the industry took this big hit. But at the same, in the same story, they mentioned that the most popular form of pornography was amateur pornography. Now, I'm driving, and I'm thinking to myself, what does that even mean? Does amateur pornography mean like your neighbors making a film and put, and selling it, or does it mean like a non-professional crew that's working with professional actors? What what does it mean? So I'm this is like percolating in my head, and I go into a photo lab in San Diego, which at the time was the premier photo lab in the city, and I knew the guys who were running the lab because I worked for Kodak. So I go in there, and we're like doing the lab stuff and blah blah blah, and this guy walks through the door of the lab. Now, I'm across the room, and I look, and he's an old, older guy, bald, um, wearing shorts, looks like a runner. And first, first thought into my head was military. He's ex-military. Has to be. We're in San Diego. He's got that look. He's running. Most everyone I know in the military runs all the time. And so he drops off this enormous bag of film, enormous bag of 35-millimeter film. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know who this guy is, and that's a huge bag of film, and how do I not know him? If he's in San Diego, I work for Kodak, I know most of the people here, and I've never heard of this guy, never seen him, and he's dropping off a bag of film that size. So someone behind the counter says something along the lines of, don't worry, Dave, we'll make sure the skin tone looks right. And right then and there, I knew what it was. I was like, porn. Porn, 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 that guy's in porn. And I said, hey, uh, can I talk to you for a minute? And he said, sure. And I said, look, um, can I ask you what you do? And he kind of laughed and he kind of got, you know, shy. And he was like, ah, you know, this and that. And I was like, really? Um, can you narrow that down a little bit more for me? And he was like, yeah. I don't remember how he phrased it exactly, but it was in essence, I'm in porn. And I said, oh, that's, that's great. I have a question for you. And I relayed what I had heard on NPR, and I said, I go, what does it mean? What is like amateur pornography? And so he broke it down for me. And the more I spoke to him, the more intrigued I was by him. And I was like, who are you? And like, how did this happen? And how old are you? And at the time, he was probably in his 60s. He was the oldest male porn star in the U.S. And I said, hey, you know, I thought I was going to do this story on amateur pornography, but I kind of want to do the story on you. And he goes, look, everybody's done stories on me. And he goes, like, German TV was just here. You know, I've done this and that and whatever. And I'm like, I don't know anything about porn, so I'd never heard of the guy. And I was like, look, I know that people have done stories on you, but I can almost guarantee that no one has done a story like I will do. And here's why. And I broke down how I worked and what I was doing. And he was like, yep, no one's ever done that. So he was, short, long story short, he was the most courteous professional person I have ever photographed. I spent three months with him on and off. And the reason I'm saying this is my buddy Paul just texted me this thing. And it turns out that Dave died in 2019. And I had no idea. He was the nicest guy I have ever photographed. Sure, I'm photographing him doing all kinds of porn things 
with, um, you know, unknown young up and coming actresses, and then also with really well established famous porn stars that all of you would know if I mentioned their names. So I photographed all of them for over three months from San Diego to LA on big sets, small sets, everything. It was absolutely fascinating. And Dave would call me and ask if I got home okay. Like I'd leave San Diego at two in the morning and get home at four and my phone would ring and he'd go, hey, I'm just checking to make sure you got home okay. Like that, that literally never happened ever at any other time in my life with any other assignment. And he would say like, hey, um, you know, I'm going to do this thing in San Diego. It's going to be at this location. Don't park your car in front of the house. Park around the corner. Walk up there. Um, don't have your camera equipment out. And let me explain to you what's happening and, and who's here and who these people are and what we're doing. And it was just amazing. And then he would break down like what exact, how they were shooting and the scenes and like where they were going to shoot and all that stuff and was so generous and thoughtful, always fed me, always had food, um, it was fantastic, and I was so bummed to see that he had passed away. But here's the other wrinkle to Dave that many people don't know. Dave spent 25 years in the military and retired at lieutenant colonel and was basically, um, I, I can't say he was a star in the military, but he was a military guy. You know, He served all those years in all those locations and all those spots, and um Wow, was married for several decades and has kids and grandkids and everything else. And what a bummer, man. It was just, I, I, when I found that out this morning, I was, I was pretty, sad, pretty sad. But um, I made a little essay, and uh, I remember I took it to Visa Pour Lamage, the photo journalism festival in France, and I made this little flip book. And there was a photo um, organization at the time that was up and coming and was publishing a lot of like really good photo essays out of the UK, and they had both a digital format and a printed format. And I remember the photo editor looking at it and saying, oh my God, you've given me my first existential crisis here. I don't know if I can print this. And I said, look, I shot multi-versions. I shot a version for the American puritanical press, and then I shot a version for Europe. Or you can mix and match anything. So there's a, there's a version of this with no nudity whatsoever. And then there's a version with everything you could possibly imagine. And he's like, he finally said to me, he goes, I can't do it because I'm so afraid of losing advertising that if I run this in the first issue and people take it the wrong way, we could be sunk before we even get off the ground. And I was like, okay. And so I ran it myself, you know, it never ran in any mainstream magazine because the U S magazines were gutless and you know, trying to sell advertising. And by that time, by the late 90s, the U.S. editorial market was basically done. And, um, you know, most of the good venues for reportage were, were long gone. So um, it, it uh, got exhibited a bunch of times, but um, that's it. And it was just a fantastic project and so much fun. And I shot it with Leicas and Tri-X and TMZ. And I made darkroom prints and my buddy Eric's darkroom hacked out of, in a cave out in the side of a mountain in San Diego. I'm not making that up. Okay, let's talk a little bit about um, point number seven, eight, nine, ten. TW200, I did secure my Yamaha TW200 motorcycle. I'm still breaking it in. It's got 250 miles on it. Um, the oil is definitely getting dark. I think I might take it in even before the 600 mile. I might take it in at the 500 mile. I'll probably have the, um, the motorcycle shop do the first service. I want to have them go over and check for leaks, um, and I'm trying to find a good service shop uh, close to home, and the store in Santa Fe was horrible. I had a terrible experience with them. I bought the bike up in Colorado at Fort Collins Motorsports. They're awesome. Um, JT was my sales guy. He's great. They were great, um, very professional. I got it back. I thought I had a little leak on the bike. I took it to the local shop. They were absolutely horrendous and then charged me 170 bucks for, quote, exploring what the project was, on a, a, what the problem was, on a week-old motorcycle under warranty. And, of course, they fabricated this story that exploring, I remember he literally said that word with, like, quotations, exploring for the problem isn't covered by the warranty. So I know that I can never take it back to the motorcycle shop in Santa Fe. But apparently there's a great place in Albuquerque, and I kind of want to go meet them and, um, and see the shop and everything, have them do the first service, and then, um, you know, go down there. But the TW is a blast. It's not fast. Um, it's not sexy, although the landlord, my landlord, she thinks it is. She thinks it's super sexy bike. 
um, it's the wide tires are really the key. It's so stable off-road. It's fantastic. Even in sand, it just tracks so well because the front tire is like seven inches across and the rear tire is nine. Um, but it's slow. Like I've had it up to 50, 55 and it's vibrating a little bit and it'll hold 50, 55, no problem, unless you're going up some major, major hill. But you know, everybody here drives 70 in a 40 zone. So you've got to really watch what you're doing. Corners. Well, it sounds good. It's a blast. When I get back from this trip, I'm really going to start exploring with it and uh, getting it off-road. Okay. Next point is uh, journaling. I get a lot of questions about this, and a lot of people don't know how to start a journal. And the truth of the matter is you just start. You don't need to do anything special. The journal is for you. It's not for anyone else. So it doesn't have to look a certain way. It doesn't have to be a certain thing. If you're making a journal for someone else, I don't think you're actually journaling. If you're making a journal filled with stuff that your hope is to show to other people, you're not journaling. What you're making is a portfolio of sorts, and those are very different things. For me, the key of the journal is the writing. It has, yes, I'm putting images in and doing that stuff, but the images are very, very, very secondary to the actual gist of writing, which is what is coming out of my head at any one moment, or what observations am I making that I can then utilize into a story at a later date. My journals are ugly. They're not perfect. They're not photo portfolios. I have no use or function for a journal that's just a bunch of photographs. That's a portfolio, and I would, I would rather do it in a blur book than, than do it in a journal. Journal's about pen to paper. It's about what the hell am I thinking? Why am I thinking this? Is this normal? Am I going to end up at Guantanamo? What the hell's happening here? That's the great part of the journal. And it's stream of consciousness. Your stream is different from mine. And don't cross the streams, goddammit. Um, they're all different. And that's it. And you just start. I mean, literally, if you have a notepad, turn in the, in the bike package that they sent me, there is a little top flip um, little graph paper thing that I wrote all my notes on for this uh, podcast. That's a journal. I could easily just turn this into a journal. Composition book from the grocery store, 99 cents. Boom, you're ready to go. Get college ruled. Don't get the fat ruled. You get the college ruled, it'll last longer. You don't need anything fancy. If you are looking for something, if, if uh, let me just summarize this again. If you are thinking of journaling with someone else in your mind, you're not journaling. You're performing. And there's a huge difference. You, the rest of your life can be about performing. And the performing will get better if you give yourself a chance to journal. Because journaling is honest. Performing is not. You're performing. You're acting. We all are. So think about that. Okay, last point before we end this, this whimpering dog in the dirt. Let's talk about the vaccine. So I got Pfizer. And uh, back in April, and I got, uh, I, you know, I have underlying health issues. I have for my entire life, going back to one, from the time I was six months old. I had severe asthma. I was in an oxygen tent, double bronchial pneumonia. I've had giardia. I've had meningitis. I've had Epstein-Barr. I've had mono. I've had every conceivable horrible thing you could possibly want. I've never had a rash, a bad rash, but I'm... If I, th I think if I really focus, I can have one, but um, never really had an epic rash that I can think of. Although, wait a minute, Merchant Marines, 1987, Brazil, I think I had a rash. I don't remember exactly. I got really sick on that trip, but, you know, the normal intestinal sick. But there might have been a rash. Let's just call it a, a B-level rash. I've never had an A-level where it, like, takes over your whole body and it's on your face, and people are like, sweet Jesus, what happened? Get away from me. No, never had that. But the vaccine, when the vaccine for COVID was announced, I did 30 seconds of research to realize how long they've been working on this vaccine. And um, I thought back to all the other vaccinations that I've had in my life, going back to childhood, whether it's smallpox or polio or anything else that we've been vaccinated for, including the rest of my family, we've all had these vaccinations. And now suddenly I've got sort of anti-vaxxers in my family. And it's kind of baffling to like hear the the, the pseudo logic behind why someone would or wouldn't get a vaccine. And there are legitimate reasons to me. If you are incredibly ill, I know someone who has Lyme disease to the point where they can't walk and they can't, they are bedridden and they're afraid that I totally get. So, and I figured, well, Milner, 
you're the sick wildebeest wandering too close to the river, waiting for the crocs to take you down, the vaccine's probably going to kill you. You know, it's going to make you really sick. You're going to get wiped out. So I'm like, but you know what? I, I can't, I need to be able to do what I need to do in the world. I cannot do that without being vaccinated. It's just not, it's not about me. It's about us as a collective. And if I'm sick and unvaxxed and I'm, and I, and I have it and don't have symptoms and I'm spreading it to all the people that I'm with in the field, that, that is the worst possible thing that could happen. So I get the first dose, no reaction. Nothing, not even a sore arm. People are like, oh, come on, your arm's going to be killing you. And I'm like, nope, no, nothing. No bruise, no pain, no nothing. I'm like, I must have got a dud. So I go back and everyone's like, well, you're going to get your ass kicked on the second dose. It's going to wipe you out. And I'm like, I know, I know. If, if it's going to wipe out anybody, it's going to wipe out me. So I get the second dose. And within two hours, I feel better than I have in my entire adult life. I feel better than when before before getting Lyme disease. So you got to go back to 2013 before I got Lyme where I, I guess I felt pseudo normal and I felt better than that time. Now I have no idea why I can't explain it, but as I traveled on this road trip, I would tell people this story. And the funny thing is there's this little group of people out there that are having the same thing, all people with underlying chronic health issues. And so people would say, oh, man, my dad had like lupus and has been sick for decades. He got the vaccine. He feels great. And I was like, I don't know what's going on or why, but it's just, I hope someone is doing a study out there. But the one thing that's interesting is the anti-vaxxers that I know. And again, I know anti-vaxxers. I know hardcore right-wingers. I know hardcore left-wingers. I talk to everybody. I don't care. Whatever. I don't draw lines in the sand. That's what got us where we are. So my anti-vax friends, the funny thing about them is, there's some consistencies. Number one, they never, ever, ever talk about anything else but themselves. So the idea of us as a collective or society or the bigger picture or the collective health never once crosses their mind. And when I kind of very strategically bring up the idea of what if, like, oh, what if you had it and gave it to someone who died? Across the board, 100%, they had never considered it, never even thought about it. So like one of the people in my family had it, and I said, how many people did you infect while you had it? And there was just this look of bewilderment that this had never, ever once crossed their mind. And of course, they just immediately denied that they had given it to anyone. They had no idea. They have no way of tracking that. But they just said, no, 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 I could have never probably given it to anyone. It, that, that's the part that's just nuts to me. And I've also had anti-vaxxers say, well, it's a personal journey. Really, it's a personal journey. And, quote, everyone has to figure it out on their own. And my question was, well, we're 18 months into a pandemic. What's left to figure out? I mean, I got a pretty good idea how, how it's transmitted. Got a pretty good idea of the numbers of non-vax versus vax people that have it. And by the way, I do have quite a few friends with breakthrough infections, vast majority of whom have been totally fine. One spent nine days in the ICU. Um, but he had pretty serious underlying health issues. Uh, the good news is that he's out and he's back on his feet. Um, no friends of friends who have unvaxxed who died. Um, friends of friends, unvaxxed, conspiracy theorists. There's a tracking device. I'm taking horse paste that died. Um, it's just weird. And the thing is, when you are sick and collectively, a lot of the people who are complaining about the vax are also complaining about things that are directly related to things that are affected by how many people are sick. And so you can't have both worlds. If you're unvaxxed and the numbers are through the roof, then you can't complain about the economy or getting back to work or all these kind of things. And again, I think we're lettering in stupidity. We let politics trump science and basic math. And basic math for me is a real challenge, so I know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's just weird. And so um, now I did have a conversation with a doctor last week. And he said, look, if you had COVID and, got, and survived and you get vaccinated, it's like superhuman. He goes, you're, you're, the immune, uh, immunity you have is off the charts. So I reached out to some anti-vax friends who already had it, who are still have lingering effects from Delta. They've been sick for months. And I said, look, when you're feeling better, or you're feeling normal again, you know, consider it because that could give you uber immunity. Now, here's the funny part is my unvaxxed friends who got Delta, who almost died, guess what? Guess who's getting in line to get vaxxed? All of them. Because they have said the same thing across the board. I would not wish that on anyone. 
They were near death. Every single one of them was hospital bound near death with Delta. And they were like, I should have gotten vaxxed, should have gotten vaxxed. Now they had all kinds of cockamamie reasons for not getting vaxxed in the first place. I can't help with that. If you're prone to believe there's a tracking device, what am I going to tell you? You know, if you're prone, if your witch doctor says, you know, don't take it for this reason, because, you know, you're wearing a pink dress on a Wednesday, and that's not a good sign. Um, don't take it. And you're like, okay, I don't, what am I going to say? Again, I went to public school. You know, I got a D in college algebra. You think I could have gone to medical school? I could have gone to medical school. It's just the math part I had a problem with. What movie? That was Woody Harrelson in that Michael J. Fox movie from the 80s about the country doctor, the city doctor who ends up in the country. It's a great movie. I love that. Woody Harrelson plays just the most clueless guy. And I was like, it kind of reminds me of me. So anyway, that is my podcast for this time. I am uh, hope you enjoyed it. I will be back with more. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. Again, I'm one person with one opinion. I don't have all the, uh, all the answers. So um, wherever you're doing, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, I hope you're well.